Welcome to This Week in IT. Your hosts are Lang Maith and Andre Forte. This program will discuss the business of information technology, business development, current events, new products, and more. Now, here are your hosts of This Week in IT, Lang Maith and Andre Forte. Good evening, everyone. This is Andre Forte. Um, and this is Lang Maith. Thank you, Lang. How you doing today? Pretty good. How are you? Good, good. Can't complain, man. Um, today, uh, we will be joined with our uh, guest, Chris Bonin, who is um, coming on from IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. They invest in high-risk, high-payoff research programs to tackle some of the most difficult challenges challenges of the agencies uh, and disciplines in the intelligence community. Um, Chris Bonin himself, Chris manages program manager, and he manages two programs um, specializing in research, um, dealing with computer vision, face recognition, biometrics, machine learning, genetics, bioinformatics, 3D face recognition, age estimation, 3D printing, human subjects research, and pattern recognition. So with no further ado, we'll bring Chris on to the show. Chris, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. One, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. And if you could, just give us a little introduction of who you are and what the IRPA does. Sure, I can do that. So um, I am a program manager. And what that means is I um, manage, guide, and direct large research programs. So in the past, I've actually been, been the person doing the research. Um, but what I do in this current role is I try to... Uh, determine what to fund, and then uh, guide the funding of, of research. So I do that role at a place called IARPA, which you guys mentioned. Uh, many people may have heard of DARPA. Um, IARPA is a lot like DARPA, with the primary distinction being that we serve the intelligence community and DARPA serves the Department of Defense. And so what we do is we invest in high-risk, high-reward, cutting-edge research uh, that will benefit the intelligence community. So we, we commonly say that we invest in everything from AI to Zika. And, you know, so there's a, a very wide range of topics that we're interested in. Um, IARPA is an extramural research organization. That means if you come to our offices, you're not going to see any cool flying robots or chemistry labs or anything like that. And that's because we fund the best experts from around the world to work on these things. And by funding them at extramural organizations, we're able to constantly switch in, in the investments that we're making uh, and, and who we work with to ensure that we're always working on the best problems and have the best people working on them. Now, that also means we're rotational. So all of the about 30 uh, program managers at IARPA uh, have an expiration date uh, stamped on their foreheads, um, and, and you know we will eventually leave. And we do that to ensure... We always have cutting-edge cutting, cutting edge new ideas that we're working on, that we're not, not just pushing the same ideas over and over. So personally, what I tend to focus on are things like uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, biometrics, and computer vision types of topics. That's interesting. Um, in terms of the actual machine learning and AI, um, are you able to actually go into some of the things that you're actually involved in with AI? Because I'm noticing oh, yeah, now a lot of... I'm noticing now a lot of AI is being actually integrated with analytics and also patterns. So a good example would probably be Facebook. They grab your cookie. They look at some of the um, stores that you go to and some of your Internet tabs. And then the next thing you know, you go back online and those same retailers are popping up with, uh, you know, ads to entice you to purchase um, different items while you um, navigate on Facebook. Is that the same AI technology that you're using? Sure. So, you know, within artificial intelligence, you know, that's, that's a very broad uh, brush. You know, it covers a lot of different disciplines. Um, within that, or, or perhaps if you were, you were drawing a, a Venn diagram, it it had mostly overlap, but uh, not always, is machine learning. So machine learning is the concept of using data um, in order to learn some new information or, you know, do some action. And so a lot of what you're talking about when you're looking at, say, Facebook or you're looking at, uh, you know, online shopping and they're making recommendations, you know, you bought this, you might also like this. Um, the field of machine learning, one of the most uh, popular 
um, you know, new technologies coming out is specifically deep learning or convolutional neural nets. Um, and, you know, that's a technology widely used, uh, including in the, the environments you're describing. Uh, within what I do, we use deep learning and convolutional neural nets in order to uh, do face recognition. So pretty much all of the advanced face recognition methods today uh, have heavy components that rely upon deep learning. Um, if you'd like, I'm happy to talk about what deep learning is and, and why it's some pretty amazing technology. Absolutely. We would love to hear that. Quick question for you, though. Are there any fears uh, actually using artificial intelligence? And the reason why I ask that, because, again, going back to Facebook, I know they actually had an artificial intelligence program that had to be shut down because apparently the machines had developed their own language after hours and were communicating to one another in their own machine language. So it's like well, pretty so, I mean, much... If, if, if what you're worried about is some kind of a you know, Terminator, Skynet, computers getting intelligent kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether that will philosophically someday be something to worry about is, is you know, something I don't think anybody knows. But I think we can comfortably say that um, computers are not ready to attain uh, the, the kind of intelligence that we have, uh, you know, anytime soon. So it's probably worth talking about. There's a difference between... Um, general AI and narrow AI. Now, sometimes people will talk about this in terms of weak or strong AI. But in either case, what those, those concepts are trying to uh, distinguish between is, you know, a, a machine that's able to be intelligent for a very specific problem, like, say, face recognition, and a machine that can actually reason. And so narrow AI or weak AI are all of the, the AI technologies you see today. So if you take a face recognition program and ask it to solve a basic math problem, it has no idea what you're talking about, right? Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't generalize how it works uh, to things that we don't as human beings teach it to do. Now, within the news, there's there's people who want to speculate a lot. Um, you know, Elon Musk is, is a well-known, um, you know, uh, individual concerned about uh, strong AI. And, you know, could you at, at some point in the future uh, have computers that could, that could generalize their knowledge, right, and, and begin to learn things outside of what uh, we, we are able to teach them? And, you know, whether or not that could be a problem one day, um, is, is hard to say. I mean, odds are good that one day we will figure out how to make computers uh, as smart as a, a person. That said, I think the timeline is about the same as the timeline for, uh, you know, fusion energy, meaning it's, it's sufficiently far away that no one can accurately predict when that will be. Um, you know, is it 20 years, 100 years? You know, where is it? I, you know, I don't think anybody knows. Okay, that's great. So before we actually roll into the next segment, is there anything else that you can tell us about the machine learning? Sure. So within machine learning, you know, the, the key technology that's really, um, you know, made, made a big difference in performance is actually deep learning. Now, deep learning is simultaneously a, a new and very old concept. So neural networks are something that has you know, been around for decades. It, it's not fundamentally new. Um, and, and so we've been playing around with them for a while. Now, if you're not uh, familiar with the field, neural networks are loosely uh, modeled on a brain. So it's the concept that you would have these, these neurons or nodes that are interconnected and talk to each other. Now, that's not, you know, saying they're modeled on the brain is a little bit of a dangerous thing to say. I mean, you can use the same analogy to say, yeah, airplanes are modeled on birds, but they really don't work anything like birds, right? You know, they're all using the same fundamental principles of flight, but they're very different. Same thing is right. here. Now, what's fundamentally changed in the last, mm, I don't know, six years or so, is we've been able to do things with neural networks that we could, we could never do before. And there's two significant advancements that have really started to make that possible. The first is access to extremely large data sets. So, you know, if you went back to, say, the 90s, 
we can think we have large data sets, but we didn't have anything like we have today. Um, you know, today we're able to fairly easily, for say face recognition, put together databases including, you know, hundreds of thousands of people with, you know, dozens of images and movies apiece. We just didn't have that volume of data back then. Now, the okay. data alone... Hey, Chris, we're going to hold that. Can you hold that? We're going to go to commercial break, and we'll pick sure. up exactly where you left off um, once we get back from this commercial break. Continue to stay with us. This is Chris Bonin, Andre Forte, Lane Mafe. Great conversation. Thank you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you looking to build, enhance, or revamp your current IT infrastructure? If so, that's where MallLobby.com comes in. Whether you need virtualization, systems administration, networking, storage, cybersecurity, cloud, disaster recovery, to even manage services, just submit your project details via email to broadcast at malllobby.com so we know this opportunity is from one of our listeners. For your IT consulting, staffing, and architectural needs, rely on malllobby.com. Incorporated. Visit online at malllobby.com. You hear about it all the time. Compromises, destructive malware, major breaches. You can't turn on the news without hearing about the latest cyber event. Learn more about cybersecurity, how it has become one of the most significant threats to our national security, and the battle experts undergo every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Task Force 7 Radio with host George Ritas is the voice of cybersecurity around the world. Tune in live every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to This Week in IT. To reach the program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather leave a question or comment via email, send it to broadcast at mulllobby.com. Now back to This Week in IT. Thanks for joining us again. This is Andre Forte along with Lane Mafe again here with our guest today from iARPA, Chris Bonin. Um, Chris, um, before we went to uh, last commercial break, I, I'd like for you to finish your last thought on um, on uh, what it was that Lane was discussing with you. Sure. So deep learning in its modern form has really been made possible by two factors. The first I mentioned before the commercial break was the availability of larger data sets, which are useful for uh, training these systems. But the second is uh, the, the use of GPUs or graphics processing units uh, in order to do the training. So even if you'd had the corpus of training data that we have today, you know, decades ago, you wouldn't have had the computing power needed in order to train these things. You know, you would have needed, uh, you know, to train a simple face recognition system, you know, like the, you know, the entire computing processor power of, you know, just about everything on the planet. So it just wouldn't have worked. GPUs have really enabled a a new type of machine learning training uh, that is extremely effective. And what are some of the specs for some of these machines? Um, Is it something where you have like 12 processors, a four terabyte GPU, you know, a couple of terabytes worth of data? Off the shelf uh, NVIDIA style graphics cards. Um, you know, the same kind of cards that you see bit miners wanting to use these days. They're, now, now, don't get me wrong. 
some of the scientists like to use powerful ones, say ones with 12 gigs of RAM and things like that. And certainly the, the more powerful you have and the more RAM you have, the faster you go and the larger models you can train. Um, but, but fundamentally, you don't necessarily need a super powerful card. The, the standard commodity uh, graphics cards work extremely well. Um, now, there's no real reason to use NVIDIA other than the fact that NVIDIA specifically has released a programming language for their cards called CUDA, and CUDA, um, you know, allows, uh, you know, a, a variety of programs to be written that work across a whole corpus of different graphics cards. Um, so, you know, nothing, nothing about NVIDIA in particular that, that, that is important necessarily, um, not that I'm saying they don't make a good card, but it's really the programming language that, that seems to make them the, uh, you know, hardware of choice for, for training. It's also worth pointing out that there's a big difference between training and running these systems. So uh, when you're training these systems, that's when you're making the machine learning model that gets used down the road. And when you're training these systems, which can take days or weeks uh, to do when you have these large data sets, you absolutely have to have GPUs. The interconnect uh, design of the GPU hardware compared to a conventional CPU uh, is, is critical. On the other hand, when you go to just using these models, you don't necessarily need a GPU anymore. Now, it's faster on a GPU, so you can certainly argue that um, you know, GPUs are good for, for just running the machine learning uh, deep learning model, but uh, CPUs really at that point become cost-effective in terms of, you know, are, are you better off with a large GPU cluster or CPU cluster? Right. So I would imagine that your environment is mainly physical computing versus virtual computing. You know, there's really no reason you can't use, say, cloud computing like Amazon service. Um, the, the primary reason most uh, scientific teams don't comes down to cost. You know, I'm, I'm not an expert on the, on, on the, the whys of this, but um, bottom line, it's much more expensive to get GPU cloud resources than it is CPU resources. Um, you know, I've, I've heard researchers say that it is anywhere from uh, you know, the, the, the break-even point is anywhere from 10% to 20% uh, utilization, meaning if you're, if you're going to buy versus use a cloud system, if you anticipate utilizing the physical system, you know, more than 10 to 20% of the time, you're better off to buy it um, in, in, in the GPU realm. And, you know, while you certainly pay a premium for not having to own physical hardware yourself, you know, I don't think you're you're typically in the CPU realm looking at at such a you know such a costly trade-off. Right, right. So I, I guess the other concern would probably be, at least in my mind, if you're looking at facial recognition, that's probably a sizable amount of data. So is storage a big concern? Because I'm pretty sure after a couple of images, you're probably rolling from terabytes to petabytes. Is that correct? Um, you know, it, it, it all depends. Um, you know, many of the academic researchers uh, have data sets that are in, you know, the terabyte range, but not the petabyte range. Um, there are some commercial companies who claim to utilize data sets that are on the order of about 4 billion images. That's with a B. And, you know, obviously those could get pretty big. But it also depends on the size of the images themselves, right? Right. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a 12 megapixel uncompressed, you know, image versus a 640 by 40 JPEG are all very different um, in, in size. Um, but, but generally speaking, um, you're typically not talking, uh, you know, petabytes of data. It's, it's more in the terabytes realm. But, but it does vary. Okay. So... One quick question. So pretty much the facial recognition component, as it's doing the facial recognition, is it actually comparing against a source database, or is it just that you take the actual well, image and you store the user it? of the technology. So the facial recognition machine learning algorithms we're writing 
what they do is they take a large corpus of imagery and using that imagery with, with known subjects. When I say known, it's not necessarily the name of the person because the algorithms don't care that your name is Chris versus John versus whatever else. What it wants to know is these images are all of the same person. So it takes in a training set, um, you know, which can be anywhere from tens of thousands to millions of, of subjects. And from that training set, it goes ahead and comes up with a neural net representation. This is the model it learns. That model will, will be these interconnected neurons, which will then, uh, after you've computed it, take in an image and spit out a feature vector. Um, the specific feature vector you get out you know, depends upon your neural network architecture. And this is cutting-edge research, so that there isn't a single agreed-upon optimal architecture at this point. Some research teams want to argue that a, a, um, a shorter but wider network will give you better results, whereas other teams want to argue that a uh, you know, narrower but taller uh, would give you better results. Um, and, you know, this is a little bit like, uh, you know, if you, if you think of an internal combustion engine analogy, you know, are you better off to supercharge, you know, your, your engine? Are you better off to have six cylinders or eight? I mean, you know, all of these parameters are things that, depending upon what you're doing, matter. It's the same thing here. So, um, you know, all these uh, factors come into play. You then get this feature vector out, which typically is, you know, a vector of, of you know, floats or doubles, right, you know, uh, numbers. Uh, 500 to 1,000 uh, entries long. Once you get those entries out, you then, uh, from that point, uh, do your search so that those entries become your representation, right? And you can take right. a, a simple distance vector calculation to compare them. Now, the thing is, if you do a simple, uh, you know, traditional distance between vectors to compare them, that can be very slow. So when you started asking the question about, you know, galleries and how would you construct it, if what you're looking to do is a recognition task, meaning uh, you have a large number of subjects and you want to search for them, you then need to take that large representation and somehow hash it, put it into a tree structure uh, to do faster search. So within the program that I run, we're approaching the point of being able to do logarithmic search time. Now, that's really important if you want to have, you know, millions, tens of millions, or hundreds of millions of people uh, in your gallery. But that's implementation. And pretty much, you know, based on everything that you just said, to set up that type of infrastructure, what are some of the requirements? Because I was watching, I believe it was HBO, and they're actually, I believe it was China, where they're actually implementing this facial recognition into law enforcement. Absolutely. And I know exactly what you're referring to, Lang. Um, they actually went to the point where they're starting to put all these cameras throughout the entire city that are equipped specifically with this facial recognition technology. Um, it was on HBO, by the way. Yeah, so you know, the computational requirements really vary. There are companies that have managed to put a million uh, subjects, a million people to search on, on a conventional cell phone, nothing fancy about it and do searches in pretty much real time. So, you know, the, the sky's the limit on the art of what's possible. Now, sometimes when you want to speed things up like that, you may make uh, performance trade-offs, right? So maybe it runs faster, but it's slightly less accurate in identifying who someone is. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I've, I, I don't know that I've seen the HBO piece you're referring to, but certainly China has not only surveillance cameras, They've started having smart glasses that police officers are using. Precisely. So these are, you know, some kind of, you know, glasses with a camera on them, basically. And that system is attempting to identify people from a watch list, uh, say, a list of known criminals, right, who are supposed to be arrested. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> it is. Wow. I mean, the only thing we don't really know is exactly how well these systems are performing. I mean... Philosophically, it sounds simple, right? The, the movies would have you believe that we've been able to do something like that for the last 20 years. Absolutely. From a, you know, from, from a realistic technology perspective. I mean, the reality is you can run facial recognition uh, algorithms on this type of data. The question is, what's your false alarm rate? So, for example, you know, as far back as the early 2000s, there were cities around the country that tried to do, within the U.S., 
that tried to do pilot programs to identify criminals from surveillance cameras. And, you know, the problem was the thing would set off a couple hundred false alarms a day and still wasn't finding any bad guys. Mm. So, you know, you, you can certainly deploy these systems. What's harder to understand is, are they actually providing value? Um, and, you know, in the case of China, they, they really aren't releasing enough uh, scientific literature on how it's working that I, 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 as a scientist, am able to really make an assessment of, is this a PR stunt or is it really working? Um, and, and, Chris, you know, I just Chris, don't know. Could you... I mean, you know, what, what they're doing is that, hey, we you know, ran this demo and we caught a guy. Great. How many innocent people did you stop? Right. Like, and, and in China, they may not care. They may say, we stopped 10,000 people to catch this guy, but we don't care. We're Chris, okay with this. Chris, I'm sorry. Because you know. Hold that thought. We're going to go to commercial break and we'll pick up exactly where we left off. Again, this is Andre Forte, Lane Maith, here with our guest today from IARPA, Chris Bonin. This is awesome. Great stuff. Thank you. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Are you looking to build, enhance, or revamp your current IT infrastructure? If so, that's where malllobby.com comes in. Whether you need virtualization, systems administration, networking, storage, cybersecurity, cloud, disaster recovery, to even manage services, just submit your project details via email to broadcast at malllobby.com so we know this opportunity is from one of our listeners. For your IT consulting, staffing, and architectural needs, rely on malllobby.com. Incorporated. Visit online at malllobby.com. How is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Serju Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to This Week in IT. To reach the program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather leave a question or comment via email, send it to broadcast at malllobby.com. Now back to This Week in IT. Thanks for joining us again. This is Andre Forte along with my co-host here, Lane Maith. If you're just joining us, we are here joined today with our guest, Chris Bonin, who's here from IARPA, um, talking about a lot of lot of interesting stuff that's going on. Um, so, uh, Chris, getting back into um, everything that we were discussing, um, regarding some of the security measures and some of the security um, features that you guys are working on, can you uh, kind of delve into some of the ideas and um, some of the things, technologies that you guys are working on regarding security infrastructure and stuff? Sure. So, you know, within the field of, of deep learning, AI, and machine learning, um, you know, we, we, we're learning a lot about it. So it's a very new technology. Um, one of the more interesting uh, areas uh, that's, that's recently come up as a hot topic in the literature is an area called adversarial machine learning. And what's going on there is people have been researching ways to cause minor changes in the data, such as imagery, in order to cause the computer to make a mistake. So, for example, 
um, you can see, you can go online right now and see images of, uh, I, I think it was MIT, they 3D printed a turtle. And they very carefully uh, designed this turtle so that as you view it from different angles, an object recognition system doesn't classify it as a turtle, right? So we have computer vision algorithms that will look at an image and say, I think that's a car, I think that's a banana, I think that's a stop sign. And because of these minor changes, and these are changes that are too minor for a human being to notice, um, they are, however, significant enough that the computer starts making mistakes. And, you know, one of the big things we're trying to figure out as a, as a research community is, you know, how do we stop that? Why is it happening? And, you know, what are the implications of that? Because as you, um, you know, start to consider all of the, the different aspects of this, we obviously want to make sure that, um, you know, a, you know a, a malicious person um, cannot manipulate imagery to cause a system to do something other than what it's intended to do. In that scenario, what if the computer mistakenly identifies an innocent individual, say, for instance, in a law enforcement um, city sweep, where they're trying to locate a particular criminal, but because of that readjustment of the algorithm, it actually leads the authorities to an innocent person, whereas the criminal escapes. So I think there's two things to pay attention to there. The, the first is these are manipulations of the source imagery um, at a digital level. And so, what, so, so first of all, for this scenario to even come up, what you're talking about is someone who has been able to manipulate the imagery or video before the police get it, for a nefarious purpose, right? And if you can do that, then you can probably just make the person look like whoever the heck you want them to look like in the first place. Right. Because, in, you know, in that scenario, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, there's this new thing out there called deep fakes. Um, there is open source software out there that can take a video stream and paste one person's face on top of another. So, you know, there, there are easier ways I guess is what I'm trying to say, that you could frame somebody. But the next thing I think that's important to understand is typically how face recognition is actually getting used. Um, so, so to be clear, I'm a, I'm a researcher. I'm not commenting on how necessarily any particular organization is using face recognition for law enforcement. But in general, what you find is that a search happens based upon an image, and they get a set of candidate matches. So they'll get, say, 50 uh, potential hits. So one face went in, the computer said, here's the top 50 people it could be. And at that point, what tends to happen is that the, uh, the, the security person, whatever format, you know, this is occurring operationally, then has to go evaluate all 50 and figure out which ones might make sense and which ones don't. For example you might have a crime that occurs in, I don't know, New York, and, you know, 30 of the people are from California, right? And so odds are pretty good. It's not a guarantee, but odds are pretty good that you can rule those people out. So then right. what happens is you use other information to rule these people out, and you see who, who, uh, who is left. Now, it's certainly possible that an innocent person um, could, could wind up in this scenario, um, although at that point... Um, what, what would happen is police would go do extra, you know, work, you know, uh, other things to figure out who the guilty person should be. Um, so it's, it's pretty unlikely that the face alone uh, would have contributed for, uh, you know, contributed to somebody being arrested. Um, what's, what's far more likely is that an innocent, I, I'm sorry, a guilty person would be missed. So statistically speaking, it's, it's fairly unlikely um, that, that these types of attacks would cause an innocent person to, to get arrested, and much more likely that they would simply prevent the guilty person from being found in the first place. Mm-hmm. Now, is there, in that same scenario, say, for instance, you've pinpointed a particular person, you've done the actual, um, I guess you want to do the comparison, and like you said, you have 50 results come back from your search. Is there a already itemized or calculated drill-down process? That goes now. You mentioned, like um, in your scenario, the locality. You know, they're on 
a totally different coast so that kind of rules out those 30 people. But for the remaining 20, you know, is there actual formula to actually narrow it down to the particular person or at least get it within a shortlisted three? Yeah, I mean, at this point, you're, you're kind of into how, how each, in, you know, investigator security person proceeds. It's not really a face recognition question anymore. Um, now, now, in terms of the question of we want to, you know, we think it's this person, but we want to figure out if it matches the video, um, those, those things are primarily done by a human today. Certainly, you okay. can get the algorithm to say how similar two photos are. Um, but, but I'm actually unaware of any court case um, where the, the evidence entered was the computer says this person did it. Um, you know, one, I, I, I expect defense attorneys would have a field day with that, and I don't think you'd get it through. But from a practical perspective, um, it's, it's almost always, or as far as I'm aware, always, that a human being is testifying uh, their expert opinion that two faces look similar or not. Mm -hmm. Has there ever been a scenario where using the facial recognition program where you you clearly have a composite of the person and you know what they look like, but they may have run off and, say, for instance, gotten some facial modifications where, you know, they might have contoured the nose, had some type of a facelift or things of that nature that kind of throws off the law enforcement? You know, I, I, I would be surprised if that hasn't happened. But it's, it's, it's not something I can point to cases to. Um, and, you know, it's certainly pretty rare. I mean, getting, getting plastic to change your identity is possible, but um, you're, you're pretty committed at that point. Um, now, th there have been interesting things in terms of your composite question. There has been some interesting research over the years to try and utilize a sketch, like a sketch artist uh, input, as the basis for a facial search. Um, you know, performance, you know, meaning performance in this case, meaning accuracy, not like computational requirements, um, unfortunately goes way down there. So, you know, the minute you bring a sketch artist into the mix, not nearly as accurate, but, but you can do that. That is possible. Interesting. Okay. Um, regarding some of, uh, the, the, deep, the deep learning that you were speaking about earlier, um, how was that, um, with the, with the evolution of bots? And, uh, and speaking also, um, when you were also referring to the evolution of uh, AI being implemented these days, and now I know particularly in systems, in security systems, you know, bots are now being utilized to kind of um, automate a, a lot of tasks and stuff like that. And how, how is that all working um, in relation to the deep learning um, that you kind of touched on briefly earlier today? In this? Sure. So when you say bots, are you thinking of like chat bots, you know, things you can talk to? With text? That, that could be one of them. But um, for, for example, in, uh, in, in some environments, we can use bots to just automate a lot of different processes. So, um, for example, instead of uh, having um, tasks set up or setting up a specific task to do something at, at a certain time or a scheduling, a scheduled task, you can actually set up a bot to do something uh, periodically uh, at, a, at, a, you know, at a predetermined time, so to speak. Sort of like an orchestrator. Sure. So that's not exactly. uh, necessarily a requirement for deep learning. Um, but for example, uh, you know, uh, this is not an endorsement, but I own a Nest thermostat, right? And it's a thermostat that um, tries to learn from patterns of life how to automatically change the temperature, right? So it tries to predict when you'll be home and make sure it's, you know, a good temperature when you get home and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, that's not necessarily deep learning. Many of the simpler systems uh, don't, don't necessarily use deep learning. That's just kind of too, uh, I don't know, in, in, intensive of a technique. Um, so I don't actually know what, what smart thermostats use, but I would wager it's not deep learning. There probably is machine learning. Um, and there's a whole bunch of different types of machine learning. Deep learning is just uh, one, of the, one of the popular ones for the, the harder problems we're dealing with today. That's interesting. That's good stuff. Um, regarding, I know uh, you guys also are very heavy within uh, spoofs. And is there anything that you can speak on regarding spoofs in the, uh, your research that you guys are working on? Sure. So, you know, um, within the field of biometrics, and these, these, this includes face recognition, but it also includes things like fingerprint recognition or iris recognition. Uh, the iris is actually the colored part around uh, your pupil, like you have 
you know, brown eyes, blue eyes, something like that. Um, one of the big challenges today is whether the sample that's being captured is genuine or an attack. Now, commonly we refer to these attacks as spoofs, although a more accurate uh, technical term would be a presentation attack, meaning this is something that you present to the sensor. These could be things like a, a mask to cover your face, a colored contact lens, or some kind of an overlay for your fingerprint. This is particularly important in an authentication environment because these are largely unattended. So, for example, um, many of our mobile devices today will have some kind of biometric to unlock them. Uh, maybe hey, a Chris, fingerprint, maybe an iris, maybe a face. And Chris, um, if we're not careful, it can don't be mean to very cut you off, easy we're about to... to present a fake sample to that sensor. And then, you know, that fake sensor obviously allows access. So the challenge is how do we design sensors that are resistant to these attacks? Sometimes right. we look Chris, for indicators of liveness. Um, for example, you can look for blood flow, right? Because of the fake finger you're looking at is alive, it ought to have blood. Um, you can look for all sorts of different indicators. But right. there, and we're going um, to further go into that. Um, we're going to roll the commercial real quick, and we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you looking to build, enhance, or revamp your current IT infrastructure? If so, that's where MallLobby.com comes in. Whether you need virtualization, systems administration, networking, storage, cybersecurity, cloud, disaster recovery, to even manage services, just submit your project details via email to broadcast at MallLobby.com so we know this opportunity is from one of our listeners. For your IT consulting, staffing, and architectural needs, rely on MallLobby.com. Incorporated, visit online at MallLobby.com. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. We all hear about information security, identity, and privacy threats. The more technology becomes part of our lives, with more data created to provide insights about our lives, the more concerned we need to be. That's why it's important to tune in to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Host Rebecca Harold is an internationally recognized expert in these areas. Rebecca and her guests will let you know how to keep your business and personal data safe. Listen live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to This Week in IT. To reach the program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather leave a question or comment via email, send it to broadcast at mallobby.com. Now back to This Week in IT. Thanks again for joining us. Um, uh, we have our guest today, Chris Bowman, who is also here from IARPA. Um, been talking about a lot of interesting things today. Um, Chris, I want to pick up exactly where we left off at. And uh, you started to get into uh, spoofing with mobile devices. Um, can you pick up where you left off on that, please? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, many of us who, who use, myself included, you know, the biometric unlock feature on a mobile device want to make sure that someone other than us can't use their phone. And the, the challenge with that is making sure that whatever the biometric we're using is a genuine sample as opposed to a fraudulent sample. Um, and, you know, these fraudulent samples are what we would call presentation attacks or, or spoofs. Um, so I have a, a large program called ODIN uh, at IARPA, 
And that program is focused on detecting both known and unknown presentation attacks. And I want to stress the difference, because many times in the cybersecurity realm today, we talk about protecting ourselves from, uh, you know, attacks by learning the signatures of an attack and then blocking that signature. The problem with that paradigm is that's why things like zero-day exploits are so concerning, because if we've never seen the attack before, we have no hope of defending against it. And so things we've never seen before get right through. So what we're trying to do within this program is develop uh, sensors and intelligence systems that can identify both known and unknown attacks. This means that we are creating systems that do things like anomaly and outlier detection. So they need to learn the, uh, you know, the signature of a real biometric um, and then determine unknown attacks when there's a deviation from that expected signature. That's awesome. So one of the things that actually caught my eye when I was visiting your website was your biometrics component. Is there anything that you can tell us, um, you know, any new discoveries, any research that's going into maybe next-gen biometrics? Sure. So we've, we've talked about face recognition and defending against attacks within the biometric realm. Um, another biometric uh, line of work we've done involves prize challenges. Now, prize challenges are kind of a fun way uh, for, for us to do research because they enable us to have a large number of groups um, test out and propose uh, solutions to complex problems, and we can try a lot of them out. Um, so in a conventional research program, uh, we can be funds limited, right? I don't have enough funding to give everybody who wants to try something out, uh, you know, a, a, a chance when I have to give them money. But for prize challenges, as long as they can come up with the idea, we can try it out. We've recently been uh, completing a prize challenge called the Nail-to-Nail Fingerprint Challenge. This was focused on capturing rolled equivalent fingerprints. Um, in the movies, this is when you see, see typically a police officer who's arresting somebody roll their fingers over a surface, maybe with ink. Um, and you capture these fingerprints because they're really important for things like latent fingerprint recognition, which are fingerprints you leave behind at a crime scene. Mm -hmm. um, the goal of the challenge that we ran was to be able to capture those rolled equivalent fingerprints, that nail-to-nail -nail representation, without a human being to touch you. So, you know, the hope was this would be easier and we'd collect higher quality fingerprints. And so we had uh, companies and universities from all over the world uh, build solutions as well as bring their existing commercial products uh, to, to try out. And so we had a whole bunch of them come to a common place, uh, we had about 350 uh, human subjects. These are all, you know, willing individuals who, who got paid to participate and sign consent forms and things like that. And they went through each one of these sensors, as well as having some latent fingerprints captured and some baseline roles captured. And we ran an experiment to try and figure out if any of these systems could do a job um, you, know, uh, you know, as well or better uh, as how we do it today with the human being. Um, the exciting news is we had we had several people who came very close. Um, no one was able to actually do better than the way we do it today, um, but some people came very very close, and it's uh, it's it's likely with some more work they will get there. Uh, beyond that, because of the fact that the way they were doing it didn't require a human being, and uh, many of the uh, the the actual solutions were much faster, right? So they could capture the data more quickly. Um, there are many existing applications today that would likely benefit from one of these uh, alternate solutions uh, that we tried out. I'm just thinking to myself as you're speaking, this could possibly replace security at sporting events. In other concerts, you pretty much you just walk through, scan your hand, and, you know, whether there's a warrant for you or whether, you know, you're wanted by the authorities, you can be apprehended right there on the spot and everyone else can just walk on through and enjoy the festivities. That's potentially true, although, um, you know, th this is not necessarily a technology issue, but for civil liberties protection reasons, exactly. um, I'm, I'm going to be a little surprised <laughs> if you see that use case happening within the United States uh, anytime soon. You know, doing it for verification of identity, right, to make sure, you know, you're the person who bought the ticket and things like that, 
Um, you know, we see that all the time. I mean, when you go to Disney, you know, I don't know if, if, if you guys have kids and have been to Disney, uh, Disney World or Disneyland any time recently, but, you know, Disney actually makes you give a fingerprint in conjunction with your ticket, and they're not doing mm-hmm. it to catch people on a, wa- a, a, you know, a warrant. They're doing it to combat ticket fraud. <laughs> um, yeah. so, so certainly you could. Um, but, but I suspect uh, in, in most parts of the United States uh, that, that wouldn't fly from a, a legal perspective. But I'm not a lawyer. Well, that's awesome, Chris. And, and I could definitely see where that could possibly be infringement, infringement on your uh, civil liberty, liberties there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, but, um, you know, making your gotcha. for a criminal background check, you know, I, you know, I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm fairly confident that that wouldn't fly very well. Yeah, yeah, not 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 yet anyway, not yet anyway. So, uh, so Chris, before we wrap up, um, if any of our listeners or callers or uh, anyone they, that that wants to reach out to you, how can they reach you? Uh, well, so they're they're welcome to go through the IARPA website. Um, we have contact information there. Um, so it's iarpa.gov, um, i-a-r-p-a dot gov. And I'll add, we 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 tried very hard there to list uh, all of the programs uh, that we're working on. Um, sometimes, sometimes for various security reasons, they're not all there. But in general, we list as much as we can. And um, if you want to learn more about IARPA, I'm just you know one one thirtieth of the technical staff there. Um, and and I'd encourage you to take a look at the website, and you can learn more. Well, Chris, thank you so much for this evening. It's been it's been an honor. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. We've got so much information, and um, IARPA it seems like you guys are doing some cutting edge research over there. Um, that we'll soon be able to see how here in the public realm, if not already, I'm sure um, a lot of these technologies are already being utilized. But um, again, thank you for joining the show. Uh, thank you for having me. No problem, Dr. Bannon. It's definitely been a pleasure. Thank you for joining Lane Maith and Andre Forte on This Week in IT. Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great weekend.